0: or connect with us on instagram and twitter both underscore m-o-v number two l-i-v we're excited to bring you these interviews and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you welcome back to another edition of moving to live this is part two of our interview with dr gary chimes dr chimes is a physical medicine physician Uh, I'm recording this in Pittsburgh. He's walking his dog in the Seattle, Washington area. I'm really interested in learning about Dr. Chimes. He was recommended to us by uh, Dr. Justin Berthold. And I think one of the things that makes him well-suited for the Moving to Live podcast is he really does practice what he preaches. He's been walking for the last 40 minutes or so. He'll continue to do that with his dog. And since I'm a dog owner too, that appeals to me. And what I want to get into in this part of the podcast is talking about uh, using a physician, not just when you're injured or ill, but also to improve wellness. So, Dr. Chimes, thank you for joining us for part two.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really have been enjoying this so far, so thanks for having me on.
0: I think the first question to get out of the way or for people to understand is, I've mentioned this a couple of times in part one, and I mentioned this in the intro, is you are what's called a physical medicine physician. If you could kind of explain to the listeners, you are an MD, but you have done additional training on top of that to become a physical medicine physician. What exactly is that? And what does the training entail to become a physical medicine physician?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess one important point and as an important caveat is we're living in a world where a lot of people use the term doctor. So um, I can actually have a little bit of an aside on this is that the nature of the way I did my training when I was an MD-PhD as I did my first two years of med school and took some time off to do my PhD, um, you know, became a doctor of anatomy and then came back to finish my last couple years of uh, med school. And in that time period, uh, when I was back on the rotations as a medical student, uh, some of the residents who were themselves MDs at this point, they would refer to me as doctor as a sign of respect because they remember me teaching them anatomy. I said, I really appreciate the sentiments, but when you call me a doctor in front of a patient, it makes it sound like I have a level of confidence that I don't actually have. And the fact that I know... The different branches of the internal iliac artery doesn't mean I know how to manage this patient on a pediatric ward.
0: If I could give, so, if I could give a little yeah, aside, no. aside to that, it's interesting that you think yeah. that way. I'm a big fan. Um, I have a PhD. If somebody says "Dr. Reuter," I look around to see who they're talking to. And somebody who really was my mentor in graduate school, who will be on this podcast probably a little bit before your episode airs, Dr. Bill Buskus, used to say to me, yeah. the, the only time I use Dr. Buskus, and he was a psychology professor, is when, I was, when I'm trying to get an upgrade at a hotel room. So I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a great clarification. And I know in medicine, yeah. with the variety of occupational therapists, physical therapists, nurses, if somebody calls doctor, I want them to say... If they say doctor, I want them to be a medical doctor. If they say I'm Dr. So and so, I'm your occupational therapist. I want that caveat added at the end so I know who they are.
1: Yeah. And I think it's especially important now because I think people are trying to intentionally obscure it. So, like, one of the new degrees for being a nurse practitioner is a doctorate of nurse practitionering. And I think that, that that's a pretty clear example of where they're trying to create some brand confusion. And, and and there's, there's certainly very va- valid roles for nurse practitioners, and I work with them a lot. But, you know, one of the things to be clear is that when someone is a physical medicine rehabilitation specialist, they are a physician, meaning that they've done college and they've done four years of either the traditional medical school, an, an allopathic medical degree or MD degree, or an osteopathic medical degree, which is a... Largely equivalent degree. Uh, that is four years. There's there's some differences, but it's a fairly high intense level of training before you begin your before you even begin your real training. And uh, so you you know you finish college, you finish medical school. Some of us have finished PhDs like myself, in addition. And then you would do um, it would be four additional years of training. Uh, usually the first year is an internship where you're doing a lot of general internal medicine. Or similar types of things, Uh, so you're taking care of a lot of very sick patients, and you learn, you know, how to learn who is toxic. You know, someone comes into your office and saying, "Oh shoot, this person looks like they have pneumonia." Oh shoot, this person looks like they have some kind of respiratory distress. And then you do three additional years of training. Uh, Then some people, like myself, will do uh, uh, an additional year beyond that. So you're you're now into year 13 of training, where you what's called a fellowship year. So the common thread of physical medicine and rehabilitation is a focus on function, uh, which I think is sort of a hard concept to wrap your head around. So like some people take care of spinal cord injuries. Some people care, take care of strokes. Some people take care of brain injuries. I tend to take care of both sports and spine conditions is my main area. But the common thread is it's really what question are you asking? And so to highlight the concept of this, Uh, What brought me into the field was the summer before I started med school, I was rehabilitating from a posterior cruciate ligament tear in my left knee, and the doctors I had seen had been orthopedic surgeons, and when I saw them, their primary question was, do you need surgery or not, and the answer was no, and then there's like, oh, you should rehabilitate it. But they really weren't focusing on that as the primary question. They were focusing on, "Am I somebody who needs surgery?" Where my question was a much more specific question, which is, "What are the steps that I need to do to be to, in order for me to do an Ironman triathlon?" And so I was very fortunate in that one of my med school classmates had been a physical therapist prior to being a uh, before he was being went to med school. And it was explained to me, him, like, these are the questions that I want to be asking. How does someone do what they want to do? He's like, oh, that's what a physiatrist does.
0: So am I correct in saying for helping the listeners understand a physiatrist primarily or totally is non-surgical treatment for people?
1: That's true. Um, And that's probably the way most people define it. Um, one of my personal beliefs is that you should define who you are rather than what you're not so I think it's true and I think a lot of people start the discussions like well I don't want surgery what are my other options Um, I guess part of that is that I don't view surgery surgeons as an enemy I view them as some of my most valued colleagues so I think as I've kind of morphed over time I feel like my primary responsibility is to get a clear understanding of what the patient wants to do and then try to find the best route for getting them there. Now, there are times, actually fairly frequently, probably about 80% of the time, surgery is not going to be one of the mainstays of that treatment protocol. But there are times that it is. And, you know, the reason I, I... I'm emphasizing this point, and I may be pulling you into a debate that you actually haven't been part of, is I've had colleagues of mine who say that our job is to see people from surgeons, and I don't think that that's accurate. I think our job is to get people to the right treatment treatment protocol at the right time to meet their specific goals.
0: I would say that you're not pulling me down a rabbit hole. I think I mentioned before we started recording, I'm currently in the process of rehabbing a low back injury, either re-irritating a herniated disc or newly herniating a disc. And my my comment when I went to the orthopedic surgeon was, I don't want a shot and I don't want surgery. He ordered the MRI and looked at it and said, how's your pain level? I said, well, it's uncomfortable, but I can deal with it and it's getting better. And he said, sounds good to me. You're not a surgical candidate. So I think in that instance, I probably would have benefited from seeing a physiatrist, but I was fortunate enough to have a... Physician who's known for doing surgery at an orthopedic to to understand that okay, this is somebody who doesn't need surgery to do what he needs to do,
1: yeah. Yeah, I I think that's correct. And I think, you know, what, you know, we talked in the prior half of the podcast about this idea of calibration. And what's really is great is when you work with colleagues across specialties, whether it's other physicians, whether it's other nurse practitioners or chiropractors or physical therapists or structural integrationists or acupuncturists, is really trying to get good at being aware of what other people do well and learning what you don't do well. And as part of that process, you start also learning like what you're spectacular at. And I think that that's part of as you know, as physicians evolve, hopefully you get better at what you do well.
0: And I know you talked about bringing or understanding what various people's roles are in some of the podcasts that you've done in the Candid Doctor podcast, which you do. And that really resonated with me because I know one of the reasons that I started moving to live is I'll credit Dean Somerset with saying this. He said, in the exercise world, we tend to be in silos where the strength coaches talk to the other strength coaches and the cardiovascular people or the aerobic people talk to the aerobic people. Listening to one of your episodes, you talked, or I guess your colleague talked about people being on medical islands where they become really good at what they do and forget about what other people do. And I think this is something that really can't be overemphasized if you're involved in movement, the accurate calibration, understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at is important. And I think what you said also is becoming aware of what other people can do and what other people are good at. So I appreciate you saying that outside of my field since you're in medicine.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh Yeah, and sometimes you get really fortunate to be working with a couple of great people. So, uh, you know, in my prior life, when I was working at the University of Pittsburgh, um, there is a, I think you mentioned that you actually taught a Pilates, there was a wonderful orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine surgeon named Robin West, who's now the team doctor for the Washington Redskins, and, you know, a couple of really excellent primary care sports medicine physicians, uh, Tanya Hagan, who's unfortunately since passed away, Judy Joparek, Eric Anish. There were some of this really great doctors who did sports medicine but from a different background. And they fortunately had the confidence to be really open to me when I came there. And it was great. We all learned from each other and we had different types of skill sets. So when you're in the world of sports medicine, different doctors do different things. And right now, sports medicine is such an inefficient market in that if you're an athlete or you don't have to be an athlete, if you're somebody who has an activity goal and you say, I need help, finding the right person is extraordinarily challenging in the modern market.
0: Could you repeat that? Because I think that uh, you asked before we started recording, what do you hope to get from this podcast? What pearl do you want? I think that's a pearl that should be in italics, underlined, exclamation points in color and bold font.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, if you need help in the fitness world and you're seeking out expertise, it's very hard to make sure that you're going to the right person.
0: Amen. (laughs) So I think...
1: And I think it's okay if I uh, elaborate a little bit on
0: that? Yes, I would like to ask one question first. Uh, I I mentioned to you to encourage you to appear on my podcast. I mentioned that I'd actually taught Dr. Robin West Pilates for a while, and I know she was also also a swimmer as, as a youth. So to- totally off the wall, have you found that physicians that you know who are swimmers have a tendency to be more open and uh, have a more accurate calibration than non-sw- non-swimming in their background?
1: <laughs> uh, wow, that's a great question. And uh, thinking through it, uh, you know, I have like a partner that we design a back brace for athletic uh, populations called The Activated, a woman named Kelly Collier, and she's a swimming background I know Kelly and I have talked about the nature of, and she's transitioned into triathlon. The nature of swimming is you have a lot of time alone with your thoughts. And so it forces you to be contemplative, even if you're not. And I think the absence of other stimuli, I, I think there probably is something to that. I think um,
0: I think what's interesting yeah. is you said that and that wasn't even what I was thinking. I was thinking with swimming and accurate calibration with swimming there are specific times for various events and whereas yeah. if you, if you're a basketball player you can say, well the coach isn't playing me enough or a football player well, the coach's son is the running back that's why I'm not playing but with swimming, there's a clock and if you're swimming a 100 meter yeah. 100 meter breaststroke, There's a time, and there's no excuse for you to say, "Well, I'm better than that other person if they swam faster." So I think it's it's great that you're thinking at it from a a different angle than I am, but not to say that my my idea is worse than yours or yours is better.
1: Yeah, yes, and I'll add like another one in there is I think about this a lot when I have patients who are triathletes in the bike and run leg. To some extent, you can compensate for bad form through willpower. Uh, but because of swimming, going through a viscous medium, it is not a willpower sport. It's a form sport, and you can't you can't willpower your way through bad form. And I think it forces you to be open to feedback in a way that you might not with other sports.
0: Great comments. I apologize for hijacking. You said you wanted to expand a little bit more on how it's difficult for somebody who values moving to find the best medical person when they need medical help. So please expand more.
1: Yeah. So I think like, let's say you're assessing somebody. I think it's always really hard to assess somebody in an area where there's a tremendous amount of knowledge asymmetry. And so I, I think I'm very good at what I do and I, you know, I've been studying on some level what I've been doing at a fairly intense level for about 20 years at this point. So uh, so when a patient comes in and talks to me, um, there's going to be, while they may know certain things that I don't know, in a specific area sports biomechanics, I'm at a pretty high level of expertise. Um, and that's hard to judge. And so I think that because it's so hard to judge, people often just treat it as a non-factor at all. And then they'll use what, well, let me judge the things that I can pay attention to, which may be, you know, so-called bedside manner, those type of attributes, which are, of course, important. But I think what ends up happening is that people may focus on how they bonded with somebody and not recognize that, well, knowledge, you know, if, if the only thing that matters is personal connection, then my dog, Bucky, would be the best doctor of all time. Uh, but he's not that bright, and he doesn't have an opposable thumb. So I think there's an upper limit to how good Bucky can be as a physician. I think and was, so was th- <laughs> – Yeah, go ahead.
0: Uh, I took some notes from some of your podcasts that I listened to, and I think this is a yeah. gr- great opportunity to bring in something that – I believe you said it if it was your partner. I apologize to him. But I think this was the first podcast I listened to, Uh, is your doctor an asshole which if you're listening to this the candid doctor uh, if you're involved in any sort of movement that's a great episode to listen to but you said uh, patients have a belief and they want it validated rather than acknowledging the doctor's expertise so I think that that alludes to it I, I listened to that and I'll admit immediately I stopped the podcast and took a note on that.
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, the way I think through problems, like in terms of like where should you sort yourself into the fitness spectrum, one uh, hierarchy that I made, you know, it's an arbitrary one, is the distinction between activity, exercise, training, rehabilitative exercise, and then assessment. And I think that that's where you have to figure out where you are in in that step. So is it okay if I kind of elaborate on what those things are? please do. Yeah. So activity is just movement. So, you know, as I'm walking my dog right now, I am wearing a fifth set and I'm tracking how much movement I'm getting and movement has health benefits both because you're moving, but also while you're moving, you're not sedentary. So that's very helpful. Uh, the next step would be exercise, which would be purposeful movement for a health benefit. There's all different subtypes. And then there's training, which is exercising to maximize your performance or optimize your performance for a specific task. So you might be training for a 5K. You might be training for trying to get your blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So that's training. Now, rehabilitative exercise is a different animal. This is when you're injured and you're trying to get back to one of the other three things, either activity, exercise, or training. That's rehabilitative exercise. That's typically done with some type of highly skilled professional, whether it's an athletic trainer, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a structural integrationist, Um, and that's an important distinction between like a personal trainer versus an athletic trainer. Uh, Personal trainers have a lot of expertise in both uh, activity and exercise to some extent in training, but they don't have the expertise in rehabilitative exercise. Athletic trainers do. Uh, that's a it's a higher level. It's a significantly higher level of training to become an athletic trainer. But when, when you get into rehabilitation of exercise, that's often when you need to bring in physical therapists and chiropractors and people of that type. And then you have the assessment, and that's often where I come into play. Is that you know at this point in time, I'm pr- we get a lot of our referrals from physical therapists, acupuncturists, chiropractors in the community who say. I'm seeing this patient, I already have a very high level of expertise that things aren't going the way that I think they should. And what happens at that point, they see me. And I, I don't think everybody does things the way I do, but I feel very strongly you really need to do the three D's, which are data first, diagnosis second, decision third, meaning I need to get data. I need to have a fairly intensive interview with somebody to figure out what's going on. I may need other data, such as imaging. Then I need to come up with a differential diagnosis, which is, you know, what are the list of possible things that I need to get going to before we get to a decision? So I think that one of the things that happens is a lot of times people are going to, like, your yoga instructor to help them recover from an injury, but that's really the yoga instructors are going to be generally going to be more skilled in the training or exercise component. They're not going to be rehabilitative exercise experts, and they're not going to be these assessment experts. And I think what happens with me sometimes, I think most of my patients are spectacular, but there's sometimes where people, you know, rather than going from data to diagnosis to decision, they want to hop right into the decision discussion. And I really need to know what I'm dealing with first before I make any decisions.
0: I think a really good thing to talk about here that's that's in the literature and probably has changed significantly in the last five, definitely the last 10 years, is dealing with lower back problems. It used to be sure. that the mentality was you would hurt your lower back, which I think you would agree with me probably 80 to 85% of us are going to have some sort of low back pain at some point in time in our life. Is that a fairly
1: accurate? That's accurate. It might be even higher than that.
0: So it used to be if you went, you would go and you would go to the physician and the physician would probably order an MRI first thing off. And the MRI might show a disc herniation, which we now know from the literature, there's Probably greater than 90% of us are walking around with disc herniations. Um, if, I, 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 wouldn't,
1: I, I, that's, I wouldn't say that that's accurate. I think depending on the age group, it's more like 25%. Okay. Sometimes in the higher one, sixty 60%. Um, yeah, and I, I'm going to be curious where you're going with here because I'm not sure I'm going to agree with the point that you're going with. Okay, I'm curious to how to keep going.
0: And you would get the diagnosis, and if you had a, Good physician, the physician would not immediately say, "Let's do surgery." If you didn't have the symptoms for it, such as radiculopathy, that you could not correct, um, you know, they they would. If the person was complaining of back pain, and the comment commonly would be, "Is well, you have a bad back. You're always going to have a bad back, and you always need to be very careful of with what you do." and this is just my perception, so if you've got a different perception, this is about interviewing you, and I would be interested to hear your perception so far of what I've said.
1: Okay, uh, so I guess some, a couple things is that low back pain is what I would call a heterogeneous condition, meaning it's not one entity, and even if you're talking about, let's say, a herniated disc, you know, there's different, you know, a herniated disc at L2-3 behaves very differently than at L5-S1. Uh, because of the biomechanics of that region and then there's different subtypes there's protrusions there's uh, extrusions or sequestrations. there's going to be is it more central is it more neuroforaminal um so you know when you look at the anatomy of the discs, they behave differently um there are some things that tend to be undersighted a lot of radiology reports are fairly lazy they may not mention whether there's marrow changes which are very relevant detail but on some level, all that's sort of besides the point Because anatomy doesn't predict destiny, it doesn't predict function. So I'm an anatomist by training. So I would love if every time I were able to see somebody, I could say, this is your anatomy, therefore, thus, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, But they're actually not that highly correlated. And one of the problems with imaging is that they're often ordered by people who don't have the skill set to interpret them. And I think that's one of the big issues with lumbar spine MRIs is they're simultaneously overordered and underordered. They're dramatically overordered by people who don't have the skill set to interpret them, but they're underordered by people who do. And this is where the healthcare market really influences things because their solution is just make it a pain in the butt for anybody to order them. Uh, the other issue that's going in this is where I was talking about the knowledge asymmetry is interpreting MRIs in a clinical context is actually a highly skilled thing to do. And I would argue that only people who have fellowship training really are at that level of expertise. And we get this for other body parts. You know, for example, we echocardiograms are interpreted by fellowship-trained cardiologists. Uh, You know, I I don't order an echocardiogram and then interpret it myself. So I think one of the problems with lumbar spine MRIs is that they tend to be interpreted by people who don't have the context to interpret them. And so I I see people, you know, so I think there's two problems here. There's a type A error and a type B error. You have one error where people are uh, told that they have a herniated disc that is completely incidental to what's going on with them and it freaks them out. And then you also have people who have what may not look like a significant herniated disc but actually may be very symptomatic in that individual. And so we're doing a really horrible job as a healthcare system stratifying people to the person who has the appropriate knowledge for the management.
0: Could I ask two questions that I think you've really brought up that I think are of interest. The first question is what you said over the last two or three minutes. Do you think that that those same comments would have been made by physicians say 10 to 15 years ago?
1: You know, it depends on the physician. I think that, you know, this is where people – so so I think it's an objectively true statement that everybody within the healthcare system does a horrible job in the management of low back pain. That includes physicians, but you know, nobody gets off on this. Everybody does a horrible job. Now, if you ask any one individual, they would, of course, say, well, that may be true in general, but I do a spectacular job. <laughs> <bad."> and so, <laughs> you know, and I think that there's this thing I call the denominator effect and I I think I first heard this from Tony DeLito, who is the head of physical therapy at the University of Pittsburgh, is people lose track of the people who don't come back to see them. So as a consequence, you are aware of your successes, but you lose track of your failures. And the other factor of that is that if somebody's come to see you from another clinician's office, they're not sending you that person because they're doing great. So it makes it look like the, uh, that these other people are horrible at their job because their successes don't make it into your office. So I think everybody's perception of how good they are or what they do is really skewed.
0: My second question along those lines, and maybe I'm using a bad case with uh, lumbar spine and pain. Maybe we could s- take any other sort of movement injury. Uh, who is the person who should be reading the diagnostic tests?
1: Well, it depends on the test. Uh, so ideally the person who has the most skill set to interpret it in the context of the specific question that's being asked. So it will depend on what's going on. Uh, I'll give an example of where I think we do a good job. Uh, of course, everybody thinks we do a good job.
0: Uh, we, partner, we, Hunt, we, be, we being physical medicine physicians,
1: uh, we being human beings, I think, okay. you, I think everybody thinks that, you know, <laughs> I think there's a lot of ego preservation. Um, But I think what my partner, Dr. Hyman, and I do well is we're really good at musculoskeletal ultrasound. And I think we use it in a different way, really, than anybody else I know. Uh, You know, if I have somebody coming in with pain in their Achilles, uh, you know, before I ever even think of touching the Achilles machine, the ultrasound machine to take a look at the Achilles. I'm going to be asking, what is it that you want to be doing? Are you training for an ultra marathon? Are you training for a 5K? Are you a recreational runner? Are you somebody who, just you know, you're doing some cross training? Get that information. I'm going to stratify them by who they are as a human being. Men and women are different. 20-year-olds and 50-year-olds are different. People who are from different ethnic backgrounds that may engage in different activities, uh, you know, you know, I'm in an area right near Microsoft campus, so I see a lot of cricket players who are Indian men in their 40s. That's very different than a 21-year-old female. So I get that information, and then I'm looking at the ultrasound. And I'm using that to figure out what is that specific structure doing for that specific person and that specific activity.
0: And the background of the person would be what you referred to as the data And I would assume the the information you see in the ultrasound is also the data, and then you are very good at the diagnosis in that area. Is that correct?
1: Correct. So, again, like, you know, one of my favorite examples is that, you know, we have a lot of Indian men in their 40s who play cricket near where I am. And so there's a condition called a patellar tendinosis or a jumper's knee. And for the most part, you're seeing this typically men significantly more frequently than women in jumping athletes, people who play basketball or volleyball. And that's kind of the main group for it. Uh, And what I was noticing is I had a bunch of men who were in their 40s who, in playing cricket, they were getting jumper's knee in their non-dominant leg. And it turns out that the way that you bowl, or or the equivalent of a baseball pitch in cricket, is you hop off of your non-dominant leg. So I'm like, oh, that's a good that's a good data point to pay attention to. And this is where I calibrated with my partner and asked him if he was seeing that. He's like, well, I haven't really thought about it, but let me take a look at it. So this is now a thing that I know in my patient population is to take, keep an eye for that.
0: I think the final thing to ask about along this topic is you said it's important to find the right person so that you can continue doing this type of movement that you want to do. And for somebody who, doesn't have the op- opportunity to expose themselves to people with accurate calibration. Somebody who's listening to this and they're active and they've got a, na- a nagging injury or something that bothers them that prevents them from doing what they want to do. How does somebody start? I mean, what is your suggestion where how do you find the right person? Because as we talked, I think before recording, you know, the typical comment is, well, you've got some sort of a musculoskeletal injury. When you go see a physician, you typically think orthopedic surgeon. And I hope this podcast has said, well, it's not always an orthopedic surgeon who's the best choice. Sometimes it's the physiatrist or physical medicine physician.
1: Yeah. So I guess there's a couple of things that would start as common biases that people have that I would suggest that they remove, um, because I think that will be a really important one. I think the first one is structure of payment. I think that's a really important one, because I think the first screen that everybody uses is, are they covered by my insurance? And I don't want to minimize the idea that medical care can be expensive, but what costs the most time and money is doing stuff twice. And so, you know, if you're somebody who is interested in going out, you know, with your your loved ones for, say, a pizza dinner, most people don't start the discussion about whether that restaurant they're going to take the Discover card or not. And it actually just seems kind of absurd to think that way but getting treatment for whatever injury you had is significantly more important than your pizza. And so I think it's, it's it's, it's legitimate to have that as a decision point, but that shouldn't be where the search starts. I think a second thing is to really clarify what your question is that you're trying to answer, because if you're somebody who, you know, a friend of mine, I have a lot of people who like will message me through Facebook or contact me and say, hey, where should I go? And they're often in parts of the country where I don't know, and I really need to know what question they need to ask. So I have a friend of mine who has an MRI-confirmed complete tear of her ACL, and her knee is unstable, that, and her goal is to get back to her, her aerobics routine. That's a situation where I can say with a pretty high level of certainty that for her, getting to an orthopedic surgeon is going to be a good choice. Um, whereas, if I have somebody who, you know, another friend of mine, who says that they have a lingering Achilles injury and they're trying to do six marathons that year, that's somebody for whom I think a physiatrist is the right choice. And in that particular case, the person lived in a place where I knew the specific physiatrist to go to. Um, I think the second thing is to recognize that not all clinicians are commodities and shouldn't be viewed as interchangeable with one another. So uh, I think, now this is where it gets hard because you're going to be looking at resources like their, their company webpage, you're going to be looking at things like Google reviews, Yelp reviews, health grades. And what I'd suggest doing is looking for things, but try to avoid any kind of platitudes. So you know, if you read their doctor webpage and they have things like, you know, I try to treat the whole patient, I try to be attentive, I try to express high empathy... Those are things that everybody's going to say, and they don't, I, I don't think they should be weighted that heavily. I mean, you certainly don't want a jerk, but I think that something that doesn't actually say what they do. Um, if they have something very specific, like I have a high level of interest in the non surgical management of prostate cancer, then that tells you, okay, that's something that they do specifically. And I'd say look for specifics. And then if you can get experience from somebody who's had a similar injury, that's helpful. So, like, one of the things I see a lot is somebody is looking for a physical therapist and they say, well, this physical therapist who did a great job taking care of my mom when they had a stroke, that person may not be the right choice for your low back pain because it's a totally different skill set to manage stroke than it is to manage low back pain.
0: Uh, putting you on the spot with this question, do you think that is where when you look at the webpage that I know the uh, American Physical Therapy Association has a number of specialties, they have an orthopedic specialty, they have a sports medicine specialty. Do you think that's where looking at it and seeing if your goal, for example, is to run the six marathons in a year that looking for a physical therapist who has the sports physical therapy certification, which is on top of the physical therapy is a good thing to do, or do you think maybe that's overrated?
1: I think it's, it's okay. I, I think it's overrated. I think it's okay. Uh, you know, if you like, you know, for example, one of their approaches of physical therapy that I think is spectacular is something called the McKenzie methodology, which is the brand name for mechanical diagnosis and therapy. But if I look at the people who I know are the best therapists in the country are doing it, it's only a small percentage who've actually done McKenzie certification because it's fairly expensive. Uh, so it's a data point. Um, You know, I think that if you can find out, you know, another thing that seems overrated is like, are they affiliated with like a professional sports team? So there's some people, you know, we referenced Robin West, who was a team doctor for the Steelers and now a team doctor for the, uh, for the Redskins. And she is spectacular. But, you know, the way that those sports contracts work is you actually pay to be able to be a team doctor. So there are some people who are not that great. And, you know, I think there's, you know, out here in the Seattle area, I think there's something like 200 chiropractors who claim to be the official chiropractor of the Seahawks. So, you know, I don't know how meaningful that is.
0: It's, um, it's interesting that you say that. In a previous life, I was an athletic trainer and worked for an orthopedic in Atlanta. And the Atlanta Falcons fired their orthopedic surgeon when they changed to coaching staffs. And I, remer- yeah. I remember asking the physician that I worked for, are you going to apply for this? And he looked at me and gave me this look as if you must be crazy and said, I don't want to spend money to get clients or patients rather. Yeah. And that's yeah. when I learned for the first time that when you see that in the advertising, I was probably 24 or 25. When you see that I'm the official team physician or physician of XYZ sport, that they're paying for that. It's not that they're the best in the area. And that was a really educational opportunity for me.
1: Yeah, I think I was actually the official physiatrist of the Pittsburgh Penguins at one time, um, just because I was affiliated with an organization. And, I, you know, I appreciate the institution having that faith in me. As a practical point, I never saw anybody who was affiliated with the Pittsburgh Penguins in any way. Um, so, and, and I never personally, I, I was busy, so I needed to advertise it anyway. Um, but it, it, it didn't mean anything. And so... Yeah, But but all that said, there are people who are official doctors for these organizations who are excellent.
0: We're talking with Dr. Gary Chimes. He is a physical medicine physician who has made an adaptation from working in a rather large organization in the Pittsburgh area to a two-person physician practice. I'd like to take the final part of the podcast to talk to you about that because I know that a lot of physicians have the comment that they'd like to spend lots of time with patients, but if they're working for a large organization, that may or may not be possible. If you're your own boss, I am assuming that's more possible. If you could kind of talk about how did you switch from something that sounds like it was a physician PhD type program. I know you mentored people to making the decision to move to a two-person practice.
1: Yeah, so I was in academic medicine. I was doing well. I was a fellowship director for the musculoskeletal and sports fellowship. And overall, there were a lot of things I loved about that. As a practical point, I was really I was essentially a clinician. I did things like publish papers and uh mentor people, but that was stuff that was sort of a side project and I wasn't really paid for that. I was paid essentially exclusively off of my clinical productivity. And uh I I think The nature of working for a large organization is that it's a really great place to work if the mission of the organization is something you happen to fit into. But if you are in a situation where you want to evolve quickly, that's not something that academic or any kind of large organization does spectacularly well. So, um, and I'm a person who likes to go from idea to implementation quickly. And so I think the primary strength of me being in private practice is, oops, sorry, my dog is meeting up with another dog. Sorry for that growling there. Um, You know, I have an idea of I want to modify the way that I assess uh, male athletes over 40. And there's a protocol I want to put into place. My barrier to entry on that is talking to my partner, Dr. Hyman, saying, hey, what do you think about me doing this? Most of the time, the answer is cool, and then the discussion's over. And I think having that freedom has been really nice.
0: I wish I had made connection with you probably 15 years ago. My dad has a comment that he says to me all the time. He says, you need to remember that large organizations exist to perpetuate themselves. And yeah, <laughs> dad, if you Dad. I'll, 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 Dad, if you're listening, um, I wish I'd listened to you when I was 23 or 24.
1: Yeah, I think it's very true. Um, I think all organizations have like an institutional momentum to them. And so you know the question is, how close are you to being able to control that momentum? Now, when I left, I think that um, a lot of people anticipated that I would have a hard time because I really loved the mentorship process. And I have a lot of lifelong friends. I've had both as people who have mentored me and who I have mentored. What I have found, though, is that I've enjoyed mentorship in other contexts that have been every bit as fulfilling. You know, uh, two of my prior medical assistants are now in physical therapy school. I have a third who just started medical school. We have a fourth. You know, my current medical assistant is going to be going to medical school. And watching these people grow and develop has been incredibly satisfying. Um, You know, I I mentioned that there's a company called Activated and, you know, where I developed an athletic back brace and, you know, working with Kelly Collier, who's a biomedical engineer from Carnegie Mellon and developing that product and seeing that develop over time, just getting to work with Kelly and watch her development has been incredibly satisfying. So I, I think that, You know, academia doesn't have a monopoly on the opportunities for mentorship.
0: We're talking with Dr. Gary Chimes, who is a physical medicine physician in the Seattle, uh, Washington area. I'd like to ask you, Dr. Chimes, when switching from academic medicine to a two-person practice, do you find or do you think looking and comparing the two of them that overall on a personal level that your quality of life has improved?
1: Oh, unbelievably so. Um, yeah, I think that the moment that one of the moments that planted the seed is that I was contacted by a company to do some videos for training other fitness professionals. And it, uh, they were looking for some films I had done talking about this. And I had a video that was about the benefits of exercise in medicine. And in that video, I'm six foot two and a half, and that was at my heaviest, I was 266 pounds. And when I sent that video, I looked at myself, and I, I think objectively and honestly, I'm like, this is kind of disgusting, and it's really not on message. Seeing somebody who's medically obese talk about the benefits of exercise is not the message that I want to be sending. And I realized that in my work environment in academia, I had certain things that I needed to be spending time on that weren't moving the needle forward, and so um, I think that um, the other thing is that when I left, you know, I left geographically, and so you know, the as you know, Pittsburgh, it's a hard place to be physical at times. Even though I lived on the trail right on the Monongahela River, it was easy to get there, but like I couldn't bike from my home in Southside Pittsburgh to Monroeville. It just wasn't really a, a viable bike path. And so moving to a part of the country where I could implement my physicality, I, I think it's probably safe to say I've added at least 10 to 15 years onto my life.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Gary Chimes. He's a physiatrist. He has a podcast called The Candid Doctor, which if you are a podcast listener, this is a great podcast to listen to. He was recommended to us by just Dr. Justin Berthold. And I think he really meets the ethos that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Uh, Dr. Chimes, I want to thank you for taking time and thank your dog for taking time to take a long walk to talk to uh, Moving to Live.
1: Yeah, Bucky is super appreciative. We've uh, gotten in, it looks like, about 14,000 steps while we've been talking. So uh, thank you for helping us both.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both, underscore, MOV, number two, L-I-V. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.